Open up your Bibles this morning to Malachi, Malachi chapter 1. We're going to be in verse 6 this morning. As you turn there, let me give you my thanks uh, for your kindness as always. Um, and to answer Dave's question, I always feel appreciated and I am just not saying that. Um, I'm so blessed to have a loving church family. Um, your words of affirmation, your prayers, your gifts, your kindness to me throughout the year is always noted and um, used by God to encourage me um, at all times. So, uh, Lord willing, this spring we will mark 10 years of serving here and um, we praise God for 10 years. So, looking forward to that. But... It's a joy to get into this pulpit each and every week and to teach you the word of God. And honestly, the greatest thing that makes me feel appreciated is your hunger. It really is. When you talk to me about what you're learning or what God has taught you or what's going on in your life, that is the greatest encouragement and affirmation and blessing I could ever receive is um, how God is working in your life and your hunger for preaching, for truth. Um, I can't tell you what that means to me. And uh, it certainly drives me as I know the Lord is working in your life for your sanctification and saving those who believe. So let's keep going, shall we? Let's do it. Malachi, let's ask God's help. Father, thank you for your blessing. Thank you for your people. Thank you for their love for us. Um, Lord, they certainly have made us feel appreciated and uh, poured their kindness and love on us and not just one month of the year, but all the time. Thank you, God, for them. We love them dearly. Help us now, Lord, to love them in the word, to tell them the truth, even though some things may not always be comfortable or easy to preach. But Lord, this is your word. And do the hard work that you have called us to do. In Jesus' name, amen. If you missed the sermon last week, let me give you a brief overview. Because last week we began a brand new series in the book of Malachi. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. So if you're having trouble finding it, go to Matthew, first book of the New Testament. Just go back one, all right? But if not, we encourage you to bring your Bibles every week. If not, there's the verses on the screen. Uh, the verses on the screen are not... An excuse to leave your Bible at home. They're to help you see what translation I am preaching from. So in case your translation reads a little bit different, we're all on the same page. That's the purpose of having the verses on the screen. So last week, we saw that Malachi takes place 100 years approximately after the Babylonian captivity. The Babylonian captivity was a time when Israel was slaves in Babylon for 70 years. That had happened because God had driven them from the land and allowed Babylon, a foreign country and an enemy to them, to destroy Jerusalem. And they destroyed everything. They destroyed the temple. They destroyed the walls. They killed many people and the rest they took as slaves. And they spent 70 years in captivity. And after 70 years, God brings them back, well, some of them, 
And those people rebuild the temple and they rebuild the walls and they resume the worship of God. Fast forward a hundred years and we come to the time of Malachi. After 100 years approximately of being back home and waiting for God to restore all the covenant blessings to them and to reveal to them the Messiah and to free them from all their enemies, they grow cold hearts. They become, we said, apathetic. That means passionless. They're going through the motions. They're really not loving God. They're just doing the things they ought to do, but with cold and passionless, apathetic hearts. And the book of Malachi is broken up into six arguments that God has with his people. Six disputations. We saw the first one last week where God called them to account because they were questioning God's love. They were thinking they deserved better than this. And they were also taking God's grace for granted. And God rooted his assurance in them in his sovereign divine election of them. And we saw one of the ways to free us from apathy is to marvel in the grace of God and to think on our election that God has chosen us to be his. That's exactly what he did here in the first five verses of Malachi. Last week, the people questioned God's love. Today, God questions their love of him. Let's look at verse 6. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest who despise my name. (laughs) Heavy verses, isn't it? This is why Malachi begins that this is an oracle. And we said the Hebrew word for oracle last week was a burden. This is a heavy message that Malachi is delivering from God to these people. And here, what does the Lord say? We got to break it down. A son honors his father. And here God uses relationships to help them understand how they have failed him. He uses an illustration of a son and a father. This word honor here is the Hebrew word kavod, or it's, the, it's glory. It's also translated the same way there. The word kavod implies a weightiness, weightiness, a heaviness. It's essentially what the word honor means. It means that God is heavy. He is glorious. How does a son honor his father? Well, he speaks well of him. He depends on his father. He gravitates towards his father. Just to get a little sciency here to help you understand what the word honor means here. How does gravity work, right? All you know is, hey, it keeps me on the ground, right? Keeps me on the ground. We're not floating away. Well, gravity is the force that God's created in the universe that, that keeps objects together. It, it draws objects together. For example, the bigger the object, the bigger the gravity, right? Why do we stick to the earth? Well, the earth is bigger than we are, right? And since the earth is bigger than us, then it's natural that we go down towards it, not up away from it. The earth's gravity pulls us in because of its immensity. We gravitate towards the earth because it's big. This is the same reason why the moon orbits the earth. Why? Because the earth is bigger than the moon. 
It has more gravity. Or why does the earth orbit the sun? Well, because the sun is bigger than the earth. It's the way gravity works. The bigger the object, the bigger the force. And objects that are bigger um, keep things that are smaller within their gravitational pull. It's their heaviness. And that's exactly what gravity is. It's heaviness, it's weightiness that tracks objects to themselves. This is what it means to honor. The bigger the object, the weightier it is compared to other things. Let me put it another way. Sometimes you'll hear kids brag at school, my dad can beat up your dad. I mean, have you ever said that, right? I think I did a few times. My dad can beat up your dad. Why, why do kids say this? Because in the eyes of that child, their father is bigger and stronger than all the other fathers of the school, right? That, that's what that word honor means. It's understanding the, the bigness, the immensity, the heaviness, the strength of God. This is what a son does to their father. In the eyes of that child, his dad is weightier than all other dads. If not, he would lose. Or maybe you'll understand it this way. When a judge enters the courtroom, what happens? All rise. Why? Because the judge entering that room is the one in charge. By nature of his position and title, he holds more weight than anyone in that courtroom. And to rise is to give honor to his position. <laughs> Think of how employees act when the boss is around. Right? Why do they act different when the boss is around? Well, because their boss holds their job in their hands. <laughs> And the respect they give to their boss and is one way to show honor in that way. To honor God is the same to glory in God. It is to have an understanding of his immensity, his glory, that he alone is worthy and the only one to be worshipped. He is the creator. He is awesome and holy. So God says, a son honors his father. Okay, we get that. We get that. And a servant, his master. But then he says this. Oh, well, a servant, his master. That's another illustration the Lord uses here. The servant knows that his master is greater than him. He's the one in charge. By nature of his position, his title holds more weight. Then God asks them, if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts. God is speaking here to the priests of Israel. He says this to the priests of Israel who despise my name. Where is my fear, O priests? Where is my honor? You see, the priests of Israel were not giving the proper honor and weightiness to God that God deserved. They were not fearing the Lord and giving him the respect and the reverence. Because here it is. When you honor someone... The honor always leads to respect, right? Honor always leads to respect. This is why in Congress, when the sergeant of arms makes an announcement, when the president of the United States walks in, they may not like the president of the United States, but by respect and honoring the office that that person holds, they all stand to their feet when the sergeant of arms announces the president of the United States. Where's my, where's my honor? Where is my fear? 
Hmm. Am I a father? What's going on here, priests? You're not properly glorying in me. Having a proper glory in God or understanding his position at God should lead to a reverence, a fear, a respect of God. When I got in trouble as a child, my mother used to say, wait until your father gets home. I never wanted to hear that. Now, was I afraid of my father? No, but I respected him. Still to this day, I care what he thinks about me. And I never want to disappoint my dad. Why? He's my dad. All right? I want him to be proud of me. I recognize his position over me. And because I honor him, that's see, I'm seeing his bigness in my life, that leads to a respect. Well, what's happening here is the opposite. The priests have lost this respect of God, this honoring God. They're not seeing God as weighty and glorious, and therefore they don't respect him. And God is saying, if I'm a father, where's my honor that I'm deserving, O priest? If I'm a master, where is my fear? Now, who is saying this? The Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts. Here, the Lord says his name repeatedly to them in, the, in this book of Malachi. Whenever you see the word Lord, all capitalized, you see that? Whenever you see that in all caps, it is the covenant name for God. This is the name that God told Moses his name was in Exodus chapter 3 when Moses was going to Egypt to free them from slavery. The word, the name itself is, is amazing. The name of God in the Hebrew, the covenant name of God, is four letters it's four consonants. Yod, hey, vav, hey. Those are the four Hebrew letters. Four consonants. Now, every word that's pronounceable has vowels. Here's the amazing thing about the name of God. There's no vowels. How do you pronounce a word with no vowels? You can't. Yod, hey, vav, Hey, to help you understand in English, you would probably spell that Y-H-V-H. How do you pronounce a word that's Y-H-V-H? You, talk, you can't. It's unpronounceable. But this is the best way that we can come up with. And when you add some vowels that make sense to it, this is why people say Yahweh. Or to Americanize it, some have even said Jehovah. But God's name is glorious, and it shows us his weightiness and his worth. The name of God itself tells us who he is. In Exodus chapter 3, it's translated as I am who I am, which tells us that he's the self-existent one. He's the one who's always been, and he always will be. There's no one else like that. There's no one else as glorious and infinite and incomprehensible as him. Dive into the attributes of God and you will see exactly how glorious and heavy he truly is. Yod, hey, vav, hey. I, I don't even understand how that was even recorded when you can't pronounce it. This is how immense. You know how, God, how holy God is? You can't even say his name. That's what sets him apart. Amazing. Says the Lord of hosts to you, and who's he talking to? 
O priests who despise my name. Those are strong words. Here God is making an argument against the priests of Israel. The priests of Israel were in charge of the temple. They were there to make the daily offerings and sacrifices to God. A priest's job is to represent the people to God. He goes on behalf of them to appease God and what God has required. And here the very priests of Israel were letting the people down because they were not giving God honor and the respect and the fear due his name. And he says here that the priests have despised the name of God. That's a very strong word in the Hebrew. The word despise, it's translated there, it means literally hated. Or to look down with disgust. The priest of Israel looked down with disgust at the name of God. How could that be? Or really, when you put it in the context of this passage, another way you could say it is they considered God's name to be worthless. Worthless. They have despised his name. These priests are the complete opposite of who God is. Why? They despise God's name. God loves his name. God loves his name. God, in fact, from the scriptures we could see that God's name is his glory. It's his glory. I mean, we often think that the reason God does the things he does is for me and you. But when you really search the scriptures through and through, the reason God does everything is for the glory of his name. When you understand that concept, it'll change a lot of things about how you see life. For example, let me just, we're just going to go through these quickly. So if you're taking notes, here we go. Psalm 23.3. And I don't think these are up on the screen, so just listen. Psalm 23.3. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. Why? For his name's sake. Why does he lead me? Why does he restore my soul? Why does he make me lie down in green pastures? For his name's sake. Or Psalm 25, 11, For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt. For it is great. Why does God forgive us of our sins? For his name's sake. It glories in him. It glorifies himself. Or Psalm 31, 3, For you are my rock and my fortress. And for your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. Why does God lead me and guide me every day? For the sake of his name. Psalm 79, 9, help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name, deliver us and atone for our sins for your namesake. Psalm 106, 8, yet he saved them for his namesake that he might make known his mighty power. Psalm 109, 21, But you, O God, my Lord, deal on my behalf for your name's sake. Because your steadfast love is good, deliver me. I'll give you one more from the Psalms. 143.11 For your name's sake, O Lord, preserve my life. And your righteousness bring my soul out of trouble. Why does God do everything he does? For the glory of his name. God's name is tells us who he is by his nature. And God will never drag his name through the mud. God always keeps his word. Amen? 
For God not to do something that he said he would do would give him a bad name. And I can guarantee you that will never happen. Because everything God does is for the glory of his name, for his name's sake. I just gave you, what, seven verses from Psalms. Google that when you get home, for your name's sake. It's all over the place. So we could, we could conclude the reason God does everything. So here we have the priest who despise God's name, and we, here we have God who loves his name. And they ask God, they have the gall to ask God, how have we despised your name? How have we despised your name? This is very similar to last week, if you remember. God says, I love you. And they say back to God, how have you loved us? Here God says, you've despised my name. And they tell God, how have we despised your name? This is a pattern we'll see throughout Malachi. God makes an accusation and the people respond with a question debating God. <laughs> Give us the proof, God. Where's the evidence that we hate your name? And now God gives the answer. Look at verse 7. By offering polluted food on my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. The word polluted here literally means unclean. As in not approved by God. Remember, God in the law Gave them everything they needed. All the sacrifices, all the animals they were to be brought. They had certain requirements, certain ways they had to be. No imperfection, spotless lamb, you know the whole deal. Everything was perfect the way God had set it up. And here's the priests who are leading the people in worship to God. Who are representing the people to God by being their priest. And they're offering unapproved food to God unapproved sacrifices to God upon the altar. God gives them rules and they do things the way they want to. By not obeying God, they hate God's name. Why? God's name is tied with his glory. And to fall short of the glory of God is sin. And they ask, how have we polluted you? They keep Digging at God. Really prove it. How have we polluted you? Give us evidence. Chapter and verse, God. Let me hear it. And the Lord says, by saying that the Lord's table may be despised. Now, the Lord's table is a word there for the altar in the temple. The altar where the animals were, would be brought to be sacrificed and burnt. This is another way to, to say that is the Lord's table. It's not the lord's table like the lord's supper we would call it today but the lord's table there in the in, which was the altar in the temple here's here here's the message you are teaching the people of israel to hate me by not obeying me and to not obey me is to not understand my heaviness to not obey me is to not understand, understand my name or my glory. By offering things up on the altar which I did not approve, you are telling people that what I said doesn't matter. That my word is worthless. Just make it up as you go along. 
And if you haven't noticed, there's lots of churches that do. Just make it up as they go along. We have to obey God the way God has instructed us. And the way God has instructed us is according to his word. These are the rules that they were set out for them. It was all in accordance with the law of Moses, which is the word of God. Which is why today here in this church, we practice what's called the regulative principle of worship. Which is everything we do in worship is regulated or governed by the word of God. So we preach the word, we read the word, we sing the word, we pray the word, and we see the word in the ordinances. You're not going to see anything else happening in our worship services. If you're looking for something more exciting, you're going to be disappointed. We're going to be regulated again according to what God has commanded us to do. Why? Because God's word is his glory. God's name is his glory. And for us to do things contrary to the way God has instructed is to despise his name. To say, Lord, your word doesn't matter. This is like today. You don't have to go very far. You'll see churches with rainbow flags outside the church. Or saying they're affirming or a gay affirming. Or I think God would have a similar message to those kinds of churches today, don't you think? Offering up strange fire on the altar. So here's these priests. God has it with them. You've offered polluted food. And by saying the Lord's table may be despised or be thought as worthless. You're sending the wrong message to the people you're supposed to be leading, O priests. You're putting my name on the line. I am a sardinus, right? My dad used to tell me when I was a kid, you are sardinus, act like it. Maybe you've heard something similar, right? He's the one who gave me that name. To not act like a sardinus is to bring shame to my father. It's to bring shame in the name that he gave me. And you see, this is what it really, really means to take the name of the Lord in vain. This is the third commandment. You know, the Ten Commandments, this is the third commandment. What is it? You shall not take the, my name in vain, the name of the Lord your God in vain. What does this mean? The Jewish people were called after God's name. So whatever Israel did in the world was a reflection of who God is. You're a people called by my name. Literally, Israel, the L part means God. You are people called by my name. You have the covenant blessings upon you. You have my word upon you. I've given you my law, my temple, my spirit. You are people according to me. Be a kingdom of priests in the world. So whatever Israel does in the world is a reflection of God. So when Israel disobeys God, what are they doing? They're essentially dragging God's name through the mud. See, Taking God's name in vain goes beyond just saying the name of God flippantly. Some of you need to stop saying, OMG. Some of you need to stop using the name of the Lord Jesus as an exclamation. That should never come from your mouth. But even more important than that is also the way you live. By being a Christian, you have the name of Christ as your identity. You have his Holy Spirit inside of you. And in the same way, we take the name of the Lord our God in vain when we act contrary and willfully against the way he has called us to live. 
This is exactly what Israel is doing here. When you go to work and you're crudely joking and cursing and acting in a way that is not befitting of the name of your God, you're guilty of taking God's name in vain. Students, when you go to school and your pressure's on to be like them and act like them and to do what they do, remember who you are. To disobey God is to take the name of your God in vain. It's to not honor him as father or obey him as a master. This is exactly what God is doing here. He's addressing the priests because what they're allowing to be done in God's name is sinful. The people are bringing polluted offerings in and they're saying, okay, we'll take it. And they know better. And by condoning them disobeying God, they're making the name of God worthless to the people. Saying that the Lord's table is to be despised. It's not anything. It's not anything. This is heavy stuff here. God will not have it. We know this. What is the curse of taking the name of the Lord in vain? Exodus 27. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. This is something to be obeyed and revered. How have they despised God's name? Well, the Lord gets more specific in verse 8. Look at verse 8. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? You see, God required his people to bring him the absolute best. And that their sacrifices, these animals, their food offerings, would have no imperfections. They were to bring the cream of the crop, the top of the whole thing, the first fruits of the harvest, the best of their livestock. But what are they doing? They're saving the best for themselves, and they're bringing to the temple what? Blind animals. Lame or sick or diseased animals. They were saving for themselves the best and giving God the leftovers. The ones that nobody wanted. The ones that they probably couldn't sell. The ones they didn't want to eat themselves. We'll keep the best for us and we'll give God the leftovers. If I'm a father, where's my honor? If I am a master, where's my fear? Do you see why God says that now? I've told you to bring me my best. So what you bring me, God says to them, is a reflection of what you think of me. So you think I'm no better than a lame or diseased animal to offer in the temple. Is that what you think of me? Then I'm not very heavy to you, am I? Hmm. They not only were violating God's law by physical actions... But by doing so, they were revealing the true nature and condition of their hearts. Their hearts were not ones where they loved God. You see, because that's what love involves. When you love someone, you sacrifice for them, right? You give someone you love your best. This is why love is really a verb. It's a sacrifice. It's an action. Do you give your best, your all to the one you love? Not your leftovers. Because when you give someone your leftovers, you're saying, well, you weren't good enough for this. This is for me. What is that but selfishness? Wow. And the priests were like, eh, it doesn't matter. And by the priest saying that, it doesn't matter. Just keep bringing what you're bringing. They're saying, well, God said, it doesn't matter. 
And God is not worth your best. And God said, you're telling the people to hate me. Literally, you're making me worthless. This is why the word despised is used. It reveals their true nature of their hearts. God is not like a father to them or a master to be feared. And then God says to them, present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? The governor here refers to the Persian-appointed ruler. Remember, there's always some empire that's ruling the world at this time. At one time, it was the Assyrians, and they took out the northern kingdom, and this Babylon took out the southern kingdom. Well, the Persians took out the Babylon, and through the Persians, God allowed them to come back to the land through the king. Through the king. And the Persians would appoint a ruler or a governor to be in charge of the land. Persian appointed governor. So God says, uh, invite the governor over your house and, and cook him that diseased animal for dinner and see what he says. Wow. They honored and feared the governor more than God. They were willing to give to the governor something that they would not give to God. And they would give to God something they wouldn't even give to the governor. What does that say? Oh, the governor is more heavy or glorious or more respected than God. And here's the people of God called by his name to be a kingdom of priests of the world. And yet they're dragging his name through the mud. (laughs) And let's go back to the priests. When the priests did these blessings and these offerings, they were supposed to bless the people. They were supposed to bless the people with the name of the Lord. This is the... um, Ironic blessing in Numbers chapter 6. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons. Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. So the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So they shall put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. So the priests, by giving the people the name of the Lord and by holding it high and glorious and to show God and how his immensity is all who he is and show people how big God is, that God would bless them by the priests giving them the glorious name of God. But instead, what are the priests doing? Here's the name of the Lord. Yeah, it's not that important. He's not that great. Eh, I know he said this, but we can do that. They're not blessing the people with the name of the Lord. They're causing hatred for the Lord. Amazing. Verse 9, God says, And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you? Says the Lord of hosts, should God show you grace for this? Will you come before me with such a worthless offering and accept grace from me? And remember, these are the same people who were saying, how have you loved us, God? You've loved us? How? Look at their love for God. Will you come before me with such a worthless offering and accept grace? Expect me to give you grace? And then also what's important here, and this is the most common name used for God in Malachi... 
The Lord says, the Lord of hosts. They pay attention to that name throughout Malachi. It's the most common compound name of God in the Old Testament. It essentially means the Lord of heaven's armies. But the word host is used in different places to refer to different things. It re- sometimes it refers to the angels. Sometimes it refers to the stars. And sometimes it refers to the armies of the earth. He's the Lord of hosts. What is the Lord trying to say here by saying this name? He is the God who rules it all. On earth and in heaven. He is the God of heaven's armies. It's painting God as the as a warrior who does not take lightly the violation of his glory. By saying his name is Lord of hosts, he's reminding these people of his judgment and his wrath that they've already experienced when God destroyed Jerusalem. I'm the God of hosts. I'm the one who raised up Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon and marched him into your city to destroy you. You expect me to show you grace now after you have polluted me and despised me and dragged my name through the mud? Wow. And remember, this is the fault of the priests. The fault of the priests who were allowing this to happen. God does not take a violation of his name lightly. Look at verse 10. God says to them, Oh, that there were one among you who had shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. God says to them, is there not anyone among you that will do what's right? If there's not one of you, I wish that one of you would go lock the doors. Go lock the doors in the temple so that no more worthless and sinful offerings can be done. Somebody close up the place and throw away the key. You see, a shut-down temple was better to God than a flawed one. He'd rather shut it down than have his name continue to be taken in vain. Amazing. You're saying, well, any kind of worship of God is a good thing. No, it's not. This proves it. God has already taken out the temple once through Babylon. And in the year 70 AD, he took it out again by the Romans. And still today, there's no temple of God in Jerusalem. A shut-down temple was better to God than a flawed one. He'd rather shut it down than for his name to be violated. And he says to the priests, I have no pleasure in you. You see why Malachi says this is a burden? This heavy, serious message? I will not accept your offerings. Keep putting it on the altar. They're worthless to me. You think I'm worthless? What you're giving me is worthless. This is nothing but words of divine judgment. You see, it's not that the priest stopped the sacrifices and stopped the rituals. People were still showing up. And this tells us what? God doesn't care that you show up for worship. He doesn't care that you just are here and are marked as present. God cares the condition of your heart in worship. Anyone can show up. That doesn't mean you're worshiping God. Maybe someone's dragging you here. Someone's forcing you to be here. Or maybe you're just here because, I don't know, I've been in church since day one, but I'm just here. I'm supposed to be here. 
Jesus says that those who worship God must worship him in spirit and in truth. He doesn't want you here to fill a seat. He doesn't want you here to bring half your heart. He doesn't want you here to bring your leftovers. He doesn't want your partial obedience. And see, what happened in Israel is this. This apathy has crept in. Passionless worship. And so it started by questioning God's love. It then begins by taking God's grace for granted. And then they're just going through the motions. They're showing up, offering whatever they want, even though God didn't say it. Hey, at least I did it. I fear for the pastors who are leading people down this road to hate God by entertaining them to death. That's what's happening all across our city, all across our world. Many evangelicals, all they care about is the style of their worship and what makes them feel good. And there is no fear of God before their eyes. Worship is all about them. It's like someone has once said, I didn't get much out of the worship today. And the pastor says, good, it wasn't for you anyway. It was for God. No fear of God. No glory of God. The name of God is not big to us. God is not this glorious, awesome, infinite being. He's just my pal. That's what many people think of God. Again, it all begins with that heaviness, that weightiness, that respect. If you don't see God for who he is, how can you ever have a proper respect of him? Amazing. This should cause us to tremble, should cause us to fear. God even says in other places that their worship was... They're just lip service. It's just lip service. It's just words coming out of their mouths, but it's meaningless. See, this is what apathy does. It not only makes you question God's love, it doesn't only make you take God's grace for granted, but it also makes you take God for granted, who he is, how big he is, and how you should worship him and obey him. And it all goes back to the priests. It all goes back to the priests. The people will do what the priests allow, right? That's what happened. The people were there to worship. The hearts of the priests grew cold, and they led the people in coldless, dead orthodoxy. Hmm. You see, we do need a priest to represent us to God. That's the job of a priest, to appease God's wrath, to make acceptable offerings on our behalf. But if God will not accept their offerings, listen to this. I will not accept your offerings. He's pronounced judgment upon them. And by the way, at the end of Malachi, it's not a very big book. God doesn't speak to them for 400 years. There's 400 years of silence before Matthew happens, before Bethlehem Christmas happens. God takes this seriously. But here's the good news. We do have a priest. We do have a priest to represent us to God. We do have a priest to appease God's wrath. We do have a priest to make an acceptable offering on our behalf. And he's no ordinary man. His name is Jesus.
He is our great high priest. These priests of Israel let them down. They led them down the wrong path of passionless, apathetic worship. Worship that brought not God's blessing, but curse. Not God's um, encouragement, but condemnation. But our priest will never lead us astray. He will never disappoint God. He will never cause us to despise the name of God. He leads us in worship that is holy and true and acceptable and full of spirit and full of truth. This is who our priest is, and his name is Jesus. We never have to worry about being led astray by faulty priests like they did. And this is what the book of Hebrews says. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. These priests in Malachi's day, God rejected their offerings. He rejected the worship. And then in that way, let the people of Israel without a representative, without sacrifices to appease the wrath of God. But Christian, that's something you never have to worry about. Because Jesus was offered up once. He's not only the priest, he is the lamb. He's not only the sacrifice, he is the one who makes the sacrifice. Think about that. He's not only the lawgiver, he's the law keeper. Jesus is everything we need from beginning to end. It's only through him that we could be saved. It's only through him that we could have passionate worship. It's only in him that we can come to God. And even though we never measure up, even though our heart will never be full, even though we will never, never get it right in him, he does. This is why we must worship in Christ alone. You can't come to God any other way, but through Jesus Christ. He has not only opened the way, he has accomplished the way. He has taken what was a burden for the people and has taken it upon himself. He has carried that weight, carried our burden, put his sin upon us, knows what we go through, sympathizes with our weaknesses, was in every way tempted as we are, but yet without sin. And here's the hope that Hebrews gives us. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. These people couldn't get near to grace because they were despising God's name because of their priests. That we may receive mercy and find grace to help in need. Jesus has perfectly pleased God the Father. We need never to worry whether we will fail in him. That's why Jesus says, come to me. All you who are heavy, laden, burdened, and I will give you rest. What God is doing here, of anything, is showing the people 
you need a better priest. You need a better sacrifice. You need the Messiah. And even though God had not given it to them then, still the truth remains in this. How do people get saved? How do those people get saved back then as opposed to people getting saved today? They get saved the same way, by faith in the promises of God. These people were saved by having faith in the promises of God that he would send the Messiah. We get saved by faith in the promises of God that he did send the Messiah and his name is Jesus and Jesus accomplished it all. So this passage, one, tells us a lot about God. I want you to examine your hearts this morning and see and ask yourselves these questions. How big is God in your eyes? Well, the answer will be found in your actions. How glorious is God to you? Well, it'll show in your life. It'll show in your obedience. And you don't obey to be saved, but because you're saved, you should obey. Because God is your king, because God is your father, because God is glorious and all that big, then it should show how we live our lives. In the illustrations I gave you today about my dad, because he's my dad, I love him. I know he loves me. I don't want to disappoint him. My dad gave me his name. I know whenever I go, I'm a sardinus, and people are going to know, you messed that up. And that's going to be a reflection on my dad. That same mindset should lead us to obey God, not for God to accept us, not for God to love us more, because here's the news. He already has loved you. He's already accepted you in Jesus Christ. Jesus, the gospel is not that just found in Jesus' death, but it's also found in his life. Jesus didn't just die for you. He lived for you. He obeyed God perfectly for you every minute of his life so that all the times that you fall short, all the times you you show up for church passionless, we have one who has accomplished it perfectly for us. And when you believe, God takes you and places you in Christ. And he sees you through the eyes of Jesus Christ. So I don't want anyone leaving here saying, i got to work harder to make God happy. He's already perfectly pleased in Jesus Christ. And because he is, that should propel us to worship him, propel us to adore him, propel us to obey him. Because of who we are, not of what we hope to attain. God cares how we worship him. So where we fall short, we repent. Where we see ourselves as passionless, we ask God to change us. Where we see God as small, God help us to have a bigger view of you. Where we didn't know what God's word has said, God help us to obey it. If I'm a father, where's my honor? If I'm a master, where's my fear? You're bringing polluted food to the table. I haven't said that. Is that what you think of me? That's where your hearts have gone astray. Oh, brothers and sisters, may we run to Christ. May we run to him. He is our only hope. You can't change your passion by flipping on a switch. You can't do it. 
repent of sin. Sin is always the one that keeps us down, will keep us depressed, keep us discouraged, keep us off track. Confess and repent of sin. Get that right. Get in the word. Trust in his spirit. Help him to walk every step of this life and focus on him. If anything, Malachi tells us we need we need a greater Savior. We need greater worship. And the answer is found in the New Testament. It's Jesus. 400 years later, he came. These people still had to have faith that he was coming. They lost sight of that. They lost track of that. And they grew apathetic. Let us be encouraged that he has. And let that strengthen us for today and tomorrow. Let's pray. Oh, God, help us. Help us to trust you. Help us to obey this word. Help us to see a different side of you that maybe we've never seen before. God, how your people have failed you in Malachi. Help us to repent of similar ways that we're doing in our life. How we have passionless worship. How we have a small view of God, which leads to little respect of God. And that shows itself in our obedience and our worship. Oh God, change us, transform us to the people we ought to be. And thank you, God, that we have a Savior. We have a Savior who has done it all for us. He's not only died for us, he's lived for us. We could never worship you perfectly. But you've given us your spirit. You've given us your spirit. You've placed us in the sun. That's the way we ought to do it. Father, I pray for those who are in a state of apathy, who are questioning God's love for you, taking God's grace for granted, and now it's being reflected in how they worship. I pray for repentance and a change, that you would fill them with the fires of revival. Give them a new love for you. It comes first with a big view of who you, who you are. Your father, your master. Help us to gravitate towards you, God, rightfully so. Not to the things of this world, which we're so prone to do. Help us to turn our eyes upon Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand to our feet. If I could help you. This morning, pray with you, counsel you. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, I'd love to talk to you more because that's the first step in worshiping God. Let's sing. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Jesus.